there's there's intention about who you surround yourself with, and if you surround yourself with in, with innovative people who think creatively and strategically, you know you're the average of the five people you spend most time with. You know when you're out with your workmates and it hits a point in the evening when someone says, "All right, enough shop talk. What else is going on?" And that's where the real conversation starts. This podcast is that conversation. My name is Arma Iqbal, and over the last 20 years leading innovation at companies like Facebook and Deloitte, I've met lots of interesting people. Sure, their day jobs sound cool, but I've always been fascinated by the real-life stories behind the executives. My guest today is Mark Tompkins. He's the founder of Forever Projects, a not-for-profit based in Australia that's helping women break the cycle of poverty and create a self-sustaining future. Here's my conversation with Mark. Hi, Mark. Arma, how are you? I'm very well, mate. How are you? I'm better because I'm with you. Ah, such a sweet guy as always. Welcome to the Enough Shop Talk podcast. It's such a pleasure to have you on today. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while, ever since I started this podcast. So thank you for joining us here today. Thanks, mate. A pleasure and um, love your work. Love you as a friend. Uh, Excited to get into it. Thank you. Too kind. Well, as you know, Mark, it's a tradition around here to give the guest a very short window of time up front to talk about themselves. Yes. So I'm going to give you 60 seconds or less, Mark. Why don't you tell us who you are and what you do? So I am Mark Tompkins. I'm the founder of Forever Projects. Uh, we are on a mission to help women break that cycle of poverty, create a self-sustaining future. That's just one role that I play, though. I'm also a husband, a father, a friend, part time maths teacher. And a coach. Wearing many, many hats there. And we're going to dive deeper into those because I know you've just kind of glossed over a whole bunch of things, which our listeners are probably scratching their heads thinking, how does this man find the time to do all of that? But um, yeah, let's, let's deep dive into all of those. So look, I've known you for many years, Mark, and as fascinating as your day jobs or the many hats that you wear are, the topic that I really wanted to deep dive into today is your life as the founder of Forever Projects. So I thought it might be a bit of fun just so our listeners can get to know you a little bit better if we play a quick game of true or false, if that's okay with you. Let's do it. All right. So true or false, number one, you and your wife, Anna, as well as your two young children, picked up your lives and moved to Tanzania for three years. True or false? That's true. Okay. So the obvious follow-on question to that is, what was it like living in a place that most Westerners, frankly, have only ever seen on a map? Yeah, it was, you can imagine, like, all the highs and lows of being in a country like Tanzania, if people have visited, um, you know, countries in the developing world, the, the sense of community and the connection and the sense of belonging is just off the charts, I think, compared to what we'd experienced in Australia. And so the highs were incredibly high. But the lows were also incredibly low. Uh, So it was, every day was interesting, for sure. Interesting indeed. Okay, and we're going to scratch a bit deeper under the surface of that in a few minutes. But so among the many hats that you wear, Mark, you play the role of dad to six children now. Is that Mm -hmm. true or false? That is true. (laughs) Okay, that's a a scary proposition. Uh, Follow-up question to that. So what's the pecking order when it comes to using the bathroom whilst getting ready for school in the morning? We love saying at home here, uh, it's all about systems. And you don't rise to the level of your goals, you fall to the level of your systems, and that includes who's in the toilet and when and which toilet. So we're lucky to have three bathrooms in our home. 
Uh, one's off limits to the children, but the other two, um, they all know who's using which one and when, and it seems to work. We've, we've avoided any, you know, World War Three conflicts over um, <laughs> over toilets in the morning so far. Yeah, I love it. Your your project management skills coming to the fore there, managing your your home team. Yep. Okay, and what people may not know, Mark, is that you and I actually went to high school together. That's where we first met all yep. those many years ago. I won't mention how many years ago, but it was uh, uh, more than like I can five, count on my fingers. <laughs> yeah, about that. <laughs> so uh, this is maybe a little-known fact, but in our graduating class, you were actually voted most likely to succeed. True or false? <laughs> actually, that's that's true. I remember the yearbook. <laughs> you've, you've done some research, Alan. I really, yeah, I really do my research on this show here. This is uh, where we dig deep and get to the deep facts. I'm sure you have it uh, laminated and posted up on a wall oh, yeah. somewhere. Yeah, yeah. One of the just highlights. Turn the, but, uh, turn the camera that way a little. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, the question is, all these many years later, do you feel that you've lived up to that expectation? Yeah, I would say because you can define success as you want, I would say yes. Um, and it's, it's, it's about you know, the what do we find important, what do we value in terms of the relationships we have or the change we're trying to make and how are we going, you know, with our goals in those areas as opposed to the kind of metrics that the world throws on us of what success looks like. So, and I think everyone um, could answer yes to that question if, if they take the, the responsibility or the initiative to say, I'm going to decide what success looks like, not in a selfish kind of egotistic way, but um, and then kind of live up to that. So, so yeah. Very proud. Brilliant. I love it. And uh, look, if it's worth anything, I will absolutely agree with that. This is the wisdom that comes with time all those years ago when we knew each other, but a lot of time has elapsed and I absolutely agree. I think the measures of success uh, kind of change over the years, you know, from maybe our younger years. And absolutely, I think the work that you're doing with Forever Projects and Beyond is one of the most successful things. And I will just throw in there, I don't think everybody can say, <laughs> lay claim to that most successful title, but um, you, you're certainly one of those ones that I'm going to put in that pantheon. All right, Mark, all joking aside then, let's move into our real questions then. So I remember when you first started Forever Projects, it was over five years ago. Uh, and then I was fascinated by your personal story, actually. That's what uh, led you to this point in the first place. Mm -hmm. So it's like something out of a storybook. You pick up your life and you move to this remote country. And while you were over there, you found your calling. Everyone's thought about this sort of romantic notion at some point, but you actually went and did it. So can you tell us a bit about that journey and what led to you founding Forever Projects? Yeah, mate. It's, um, it's like any story, it starts with just one kind of inciting incident, um, a moment that changes the trajectory and the next step you're going to take. And, and any journey starts with a next step in a different direction. And for us, it was um, Anna and I, my wife and I had um, just had our first child, Jackson. He was six months old, sitting at home in our comfortable lounge room in Wollongong, New South Wales, south coast of Australia, and um, flicking on this documentary. It was called The Dying Rooms. And we're like, what, what is this? And it was a, about... Um, the situation of, of children who are like in interim care or orphanages in, in a developing country. And these volunteers were, were completely appalled by the human rights abuses that were going on in this, this place for these kids. And so they kind of snuck cameras in and they're wandering around this orphanage. And there's these kids that are just being neglected. There was a room where kids were, were kind of sent basically just to die. And they were just strapped to these chairs, not, not fed. And it was pretty overwhelming. Like, 
you know, we didn't know what to do with ourselves, but we're just watching this thing and then looking at our son who's six months old on the couch just thinking, here he is, he's just had a feed. He's sleeping soundly next to his parents. If either of our parents, Anna and our parents came in as grandparents, they'd be running, pushing each other away to like give them that, give him that first cuddle. And here's these other kids that haven't got that same opportunity. And so that was the kind of moment for us where we were like, what would it look like to open up our home to kids like this who didn't have that hope of a family of their own? Um, now, there's, it's a long story between that and, and then ending up on a plane with Jackson four years later and our, our second child, Jemima, who was one when we moved. But that was the moment for us that really got us, planted a seed, I think, to kind of imagine what our family would look like if um, we opened it up to kids who didn't have that hope of their own. And, and we did explore domestic adoption in Australia and foster care and um, looked at um, the intercountry adoption program, but long story short, a lot of red tape. And we're like, well, we've been keen to move overseas anyway. And Tanzania was the country that ticked the boxes. It was um, safe, obviously really important, moving there with two young kids. And you've got kids similar age to what ours were at the time. Um, and, you know, one where the um, ethical nature of adoption was really important to us, obviously, where we could trust that that was going to be upheld. Um, while living and working there, we, we fostered and eventually adopted our th- like three more beautiful kids, Shay, Charlie and Jabari. And so um, that was the end of 2010 when um, when our family went from two to five overnight. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, look, clearly a lot of thought has gone into that in terms of making the choice about going to Tanzania. But you mentioned the word adoption and one of the key things that always stands out whenever I hear your story is about that visit that you made to an orphanage when you were there. Maybe you can tell us a bit more about that. Yeah. So we, even before arriving in Tanzania, we were already, um, you know, we'd made the decision to move there and we'd gotten jobs. And so we started investigating organizations that actually had children in their care where, um, there was no longer a possibility of family unification and, and they weren't connected to biological family. And so the best option for these children was adoption. Um, you know, com- compared to living their life in an institution. The thing I think that resonated, mate, with, with the organization was they said, you know, our mission is to keep families together at all costs. And their happiest day was what they said was a day where they could close the door on the orphanage because kids were being cared for by their relatives in the community and, and they were no, ne- no longer needed as an orphanage. Um, so that really resonated with us. And, um, and the day we left the baby home with our three, like your heart breaks for the 57 other kids you walk past who aren't going to go to a family, they're still in that institution. And so I think for us, the lingering question, you know, when we got home that night and also days and years since has been what would need to have changed in our kids' biological mum's story and all those kids, all their biological mum's story, so that abandonment and malnourishment wasn't a separation factor for families in the first place. And and that question was what really um, inspired us to start Forever Projects. What a powerful story and, uh, yeah, it really speaks to how you've built your family out of love, but also that led to you building something larger and sharing that uh, love with a broader community as well. So is there any one particular story maybe that stands out? Yeah, totally. So the um, so the fortunate thing for us was at the time we were asking that question for ourselves, you know, what would need to have changed upstream, like a systems change solution to, to adoption and child abandonment. Um, the organization we'd adopted from was already thinking about that and they'd already piloted this project to kind of identify women in crisis before the point where the child was so malnourished that they weren't able to care for them or before they tragically made that decision to abandon their children. Um, and they were working with some of these women in a, in a 12 month program to, to test if that solution would, you know, reduce the number of children in an orphanage. And one of the women 
um, in that early project. Her name was Shakuru, and uh, she'd given birth to a little boy, Joseph. He was losing weight because she was unable to lactate. She was so sick from tuberculosis. She was HIV positive um, and so unable to feed him. And without the, you know, in, in Australia or a Western country or a country with resources and a, a, and a solid kind of medical system, um, you could get, there'd be a safety net and you could go to the social welfare, go to the hospital to get help. Um, and she went to the hospital, she went to social welfare, and they said, nothing we can do. And so she was in this desperate situation, I can't even imagine, of watching on going, is it better for me to give up my child because I know that he's going to, you know, be at least nourished, or is it better for me to keep him and watch on as he loses weight further? Um, and, you know, no woman should ever have to ask that question. Um, and there was real danger that, you know, little Joseph would have ended up even in the same orphanage that our kids had been in all those years before. Um, but this is a great story in that it didn't end that way. The, she was one of the women identified in the project. So along with other women, she joined um, the team at this, this orphanage we adopted from for kind of a weekly training program. So each week her and other women would join. They'd receive nutrition for their malnourished child. Obviously, that was the most immediate need. In addition to like, in addition to crisis support, that would help immediately improve their quality of life. Um, but then once she'd be coming for a couple of weeks and, and the, the kind of context of her life was clearer to the Tanzanian team, they then identified, okay, what business can we help set up for Shakuru that is going to provide income for her and Joseph going forward? Like once he's weaned and on solid food, how can she provide for him independently? And they identified she was a great seamstress. She had experience in sewing, very creative, but didn't have the capital to start a business. And so they but purchased the sewing machine and initial material, did business training, you know, all the stuff around how do you charge a certain amount of profit to make a margin and then go back and buy more stock and have enough to live. And the business was, was thriving. And within 12 months, Joseph's chubby and healthy. Um, her business is, is producing income um, to the point that she was able to finish building a home um, and she was independent. And that whole 12-month program only cost $1,200 Australian dollars. Um, and so... Hearing stories like that over there, we're like, this is amazing. This, this is the solution to the problem that our kids and their biological mum faced. How do we tell more people about this? This is just, it's remarkable. Uh, what a heartbreaking story to hear that, you know, as you say, nobody should have to go through that choice, in particular with your child. And it, it's such a, a tricky situation. It's good that in this case, it turned out with a happy ending to that story. But um, yeah, I think some of the things that stand out to me there is... You know, sometimes our inclination can be, well, we hear one of these heartbreaking stories and it turns into a case of charity. One of the things I've heard you speak about uh, a lot is the concept of a hand up and not a handout. Um, yeah. How did that shape the, the forever part of the forever project story for you? Yeah, that was, I mean, that was by design again by the local team um, that, that, that were running the program and their strong belief was um, obviously it makes sense economically for, for a family to be, on their own feet and independent, um, but also from a, a dignity perspective, like the, the pride, like I've, I've purchased goods from a Shakura's stall and the pride in her eyes as she sells you an item that she's made without any help other than that initial startup, it's, that's so important. And um, yeah, it just, I think it just translates to further belief in other areas of, of her life and then other women in the community see the change in her and believe the same is possible for them. So that forever aspect of the work, super important. So hand up, not a hand out. 
This experience obviously struck a chord with you and your family. And to your credit, you actually decided to do something about it. Um, for a lot of people, that's kind of where things typically end. You know, maybe you'll give something to charity or you might do something, but there's kind of an end point to that. But in your case, you found uh, a way to m- take your personal story and actually get others involved in it. You kind of turned your personal story into a movement of some sort. So how do you go about turning your personal story into a movement that involves other people? Such a good question. And it's, I think it's really important for, especially for founders, but anyone, you know, in a business that's, um, you know, solving problems, which is what businesses, whether they're for profit or nonprofits do having a really clear, um, connection of, of your personal why and motives and how that connects to what the organization is doing. Cause it, people are interested in us and people are interested in people. And so if, if we start talking about that, that can naturally lead to the mission of these companies or nonprofits we work for. So in our case, we had our friends and families captive attention because we'd moved to Tanzania, we'd grown our family from two to five. So people were interested in what we were doing and asking how could they get involved. Um, so I think having that initial interest is super important. Um, and, you know, it's Seth Godin, one of my guru, guru kind of rock stars in marketing talks about how do you make a purple cow? You know, there's all these other cows. What's the purple cow? So having something that you can actually talk about that's going to be remarkable. Um, so we were fortunate in our case for that to be our personal story. But for anyone listening, you got to think about what that is for you or for your organization. Um, but then it's about what do you do with that attention and trust that you have initially from that initial following, you know, your small survival audience, so to speak. And so what we wanted to do was to raise money for women like Shakuru. We could see the power in that pilot project. We'd asked our local partners, what do you need to scale this up? And they said, well, our annual budget's actually 4,000 US dollars. So any help will be, will be grateful. Um, and so we thought, all right, how do we not guilt or oblige friends and family into, into giving, but how do we inspire them and, and motivate them? And I think the advantage of like going initially to your people that you love the most is you're not going to want to um, invite them into something that you're not proud of because these are the people you love. You don't want them to have a bad Saturday evening or, you know, have a bad experience. So these these are the things that underpin, I think, the way we approached it. So we, we went to some friends who had a cafe. We said, look, can we have an event? 60 people. We want to raise money for this inspiring work in Tanzania. We want to turn it into an art gallery. And so can you guys supply the food and drinks and, they, and, and let us know how much it's going to be? And they said, hey, no problem. We'll do it for free. So our friends at Lee and me in Wollongong, amazing. So event cost covered. Um, venue, food, drinks, and then we're like, okay, we'll invite people to pay to come and then we'll invite them then just to wander around the cafe and there'll be 16 inspiring stories hung up like, you know, beautiful photos, a little plaque with a story and there'll be stories like Shakuru's and uh, inspiring stories of how the team empowered them through, you know, through this program and then we'll just say, Here the co- here's the cost of the sewing machine, $300. Would you like to make that possible for someone else in the future? Give as you feel led. So we invited these 60 people and um, on the night we made $16,000. 100% of it could go to Tanzania. These, these people had an amazing experience. They walked out going, wow, I get Mark and Anna's adoption journey, but I get how supporting this particular mission actually keeps families together. So they kind of, you know, our story was part of that, but it kind of, the, the work that we were inviting them into transcended our own story. Um, and the great thing, mate, was like a year later, we then invited those same 60 people back to the uh, same event, same location, and then we put 16 new stories on the wall. And those 16 stories were where their money went from the year before. So there was that beautiful connection of, okay, 
we've we've got your trust. We've asked you to donate, but we're not going to forget to connect you with the power of your impact. And that those are the kind of I think key philosophies that have helped us scale for the projects is just inviting people in through storytelling, hope, inspiration, and then when they give celebrate their generosity and help them see how far the money went. That's an amazing launch story, but I think one of the most powerful things there as well is how you've used your personal story as something of a lens, right? I mean, frankly, before you started doing this work, I couldn't even spell Tanzania. Um, So it's been really inspiring for myself and I'm sure your other friends and family to see these stories. I mean, sure, having those 16 stories on the wall is really powerful, but seeing it through the lens of you and how you saw it. I think that's actually a really powerful thing. And as you say, that transcends charity or nonprofit or anything. I think that's just a great lesson for any of us who are trying to start a movement. You know, how, how an organization makes you feel is part of its brand, its, its, its soul. And I think that sticking to that has been really important, um, both initially and ongoing. Businesses just solve problems for people. Um, we're in the same, so approaching what we're doing from a business mindset and saying, how do we solve both of these problems in a way that there's intersection? Um, that's been different as opposed to a maybe a traditional charity mindset, which is, hey, we'll come over and solve your problem, Tanzania, or hey, rich person, I'll shake a bucket, you give until, you know, you should feel guilty about what's going on. And, and that's like just totally not the way we want to do it. So I think those couple of things are some of the ways that we've tried to really um, Put people in. Mark, I really like that approach. Nobody likes to be guilted into doing anything. Um, and that often seems to be the the resort in uh, this kind of space. But uh, it's great to see that you've really approached it with a business mindset. And for me personally, one of the phrases that I've heard you use continually, and I've now adopted it into my life as well, is a really powerful phrase. I don't know if you coined it or not, but this phrase has meant a lot to me. It's as simple as this. Use what's in your hands. Can you maybe break that down for us and, and talk to us about how that became your philosophy? Yeah, that's, I, I'd love to take credit for it. I can take credit for like leveraging it, amplifying it, but uh, that was one of our community members, Matt. He's a really amazing builder. He was telling the story of uh, at one of our events of just how he had um, you know, been just building homes for people and then kind of using some of the profits to give towards for projects. And, he, and when he, people were asking him, how did you decide to do that? He's like, well, I just thought, what's in my hands? I've got a hammer. I can use that for good. And we thought, oh, that's such a great way of saying it. It's like, because we believe everyone, whether it's their time, their talent, their network, their money, like everyone's got something in their hands they can use. People have really appreciated being trusted to be generous as they feel led. And, um, and going back to kind of the brand piece, we've really tried to grow our, our community movement by instead of just saying, what can you do? Here's some text. Here's some ideas. It's just like, Hey, here's Armour. Here's him using what's in his hands. Here's Josh over here. Here's Penelope. And our social media feed is just full of people, uh, you know, being celebrated for being generous. And then that those stories inspire others. So, yeah, that's that's been super important for us and continues to be. It's such a powerful phrase and I've been using it at, at least on a weekly basis. I may or may not take credit for it, but I sometimes uh, give you credit for it as well and, and the work that you've been doing. But yeah, I found as I say that phrase to other people, really it's a bit of a light bulb moment to say, wow, it's not just giving time, giving money, giving whatever it may be. There are actually other ways of thinking about how I can create impact and rally around a cause um, that I'm working on. Yeah, All right, Mark, yeah. I've been giving you a whole bunch of softball questions here, so it's time for me yeah. to ask you some hard questions now, or maybe <laughs> to ask yourself some hard questions. So yeah. I can imagine probably 
<laughs> probably in this space, one of the biggest challenges with running a nonprofit is all of the reasons for people not to engage. Mm -hmm. So everyone's busy, everyone's got their priorities, and to a large extent, even the people who are kind of the giving types, they've probably got mm -hmm. their favorite charities or their own priorities mm -hmm. that just make it, you know, it kind of puts this in the too hard basket sometimes. Yeah. So along your journey, what are the hard questions that people have generally asked before deciding to give or get involved mm. in the cause? Mm. Yeah, there's there's many and it's such so important for any movement that's trying to solve a problem to identify, okay, what do we want? But what are the obstacles that get in the way of us getting there? And particularly with an international, inter internationally based charity like ours in Tanzania, like when I send that $100 via credit card into your account, how much actually goes over there and then what happens to it. Um, so we, as I was saying earlier, like we've kind of really tried to um, think about other organizations that are adopting best practice in this space and trying to chart the way, so so to speak, in, in terms of best practice. And one of them is called Charity Water and they innovated on this amazing business model where they separated their charity's operational costs, cost for their staff and cost of fundraising from the actual projects themselves. And so they said, look, 100% of your donation will reach the projects that we're funding because our core costs are covered. And I heard this in a podcast years ago and like, that is genius. And so in 2017, we adopted that as a business model and every cent since that's been donated to for the projects for the, for the project itself has reached Tanzania. And then another question we often get asked is around then, okay, you've got my $100. We trust that you've got the right team in place to, you know, deliver the program. But how do I know if it made an impact? And so early on, we created this, um, well, we, we investigated what does it look like not to measure outputs as in how much, how many business businesses have been set up, how much nutrition has been provided, how many mosquito nets have been given out, like they're all outputs, but instead measure outcomes. So what change in income did Shakuru experience because of the business that was set up? Um, how many cases of malaria have families had since being educated about malaria and having a mosquito net. What's the weight of the child now compared to six months ago, three months ago on the back of the nutrition? Um, and so we've got a really robust kind of measurement and evaluation framework in place um, that's all the local partners will enter the data in real time and that then spits out on an impact dashboard on our website. Um, it's obviously not sharing um, the beneficiary's personal information, but it's a way for, de for donors to go, all right, well, I can see that this impact was created as an outcome because of the money that we collectively have given. It's been a, been a journey to get there, right? Like over years and years and years of getting it wrong, learning, getting asked consistently hard questions, and then going, we've got to make sure we address that. Otherwise, we're not going to get anywhere. Absolutely. And I, I think I may have been one of the people asking those hard questions along the way. But look, I'm quite an analytical person. So to see the way that you've codified and been able to report on impact and, you know, really mm. boil it down to key metrics has been super mm. impressive and... Um, yeah, really, as somebody who is getting involved from a giving perspective, it's it just makes it so much more tangible to be able to see the impact of where mm. things are going. And again, the 100% model, it's mm. so simple in, in concept once you hear it, but it is one of those stumbling blocks just in the nonprofit space in general. So mm. to hear you taking inspiration from all these sort of different places has been really inspiring in itself. You know, it's kind of like a greatest hits or best of you've just collated <laughs> all, all of these great yeah. ideas and combined it in uh, over the years so that's been totally. really awesome to see there's there's intention about who you surround yourself with and if you surround yourself with in with innovative people who think creatively and strategically 
you know, you're the average of the five people you spend most time with. So, like, that's it's no surprise that our organisation is innovative because the people in our community, like yourself, are. Um, so that's, I think, you know, anyone who's listening who wants to change something, like, go, all right, what are we trying to change? And then are the people that I'm around most of the time, do they embody those values or are they going in that direction? If not, I've either got to give up or change who I'm hanging out with. All right, mate, I've asked you enough hard questions then. Let's wrap this up with a feel-good moment. So my final question for you is, what are some of the good news stories that have come since launching Forever Projects? I love the quote um, from Victoria Harrison, one of our mentors, that says, always kind of prove the universal through the specific. So tell a story that shows the power of what's been achieved. And for us as adoptive parents, but also with people who care about helping women break that cycle of poverty, um, it's, it's Shakuru's story. So I shared her story earlier about um, her little boy Joseph and and the, the amazing change in her journey. Um, so throughout the years after that 12-month program, uh, the team obviously keeps connected with her. Throughout COVID, she ended up like sewing masks and teaching other women to sew masks. So helping keep the community safe, making a profit from that in a way that's not inappropriate, but it's that blend of going, what problem can I solve that's going to make people's lives better and how can you know that that actually continue to fuel my purpose-driven business and life going forward. Um, but even more so than the, the, the local teams were like, oh, wow, she's actually able to, without any kind of nudge, just naturally coach other women. So how do we invite her to come back in and kind of um, join the paid staff team as like a coach or as an alumni? Um, and the team's interested now in kind of identifying women like Shakuru and others that can come in who have so much empathy, right, for the women who are just going through that, that 12-month program because they've been there um, and guiding them to coach. And and one of the ideas is that she could set up a room um, in the baby home, the very baby home we adopted our children from, um, and, and set it up with sewing machines and kind of teach women how to sew. And little Joseph will be there with her for that. Uh, he's probably five or six years old now. And I, I just picture that the room that used to be full of cots and orphan babies is empty because this project's keeping families together and that, that room's now going to be full of sewing machines and a little baby who could have been an orphan in that room um, is there watching his mum empower other women and I just get you know, tingles thinking about that. You know, I was just talking to one of the local partners this morning, there's only 19 kids in that orphanage now, there were, were 65. Um, so there's rooms empty ready to focus on training and I just love that story because I think it just embodies the hope um, and what's possible throughout throughout this project. And as we're going forward, how many other Shakuras are there? It's like we're almost up to 1,400 women and nearly 1,800 babies um, that the project has empowered throughout six cities um, in Tanzania as the project has scaled. And so, you know, how many other stories are there like that out there that just mean that it's, um, yeah, it's accelerating in terms of not just um, lives changed, but the influence these women are having in the communities that they live in. It's, uh, it's really inspiring. I love to hear the numbers. The numbers definitely satisfy the brain part of me, but uh, I'd be telling a lie if I said that Shakuru story isn't moving. And look, as human beings, we started this podcast talking about storytelling and the power of storytelling to get people involved. Even just as you tell Shakuru's story there, there may or may not be some dust in my eye right now. That's very inspiring to hear that story of a specific individual who came from such a place of hardship and through this program, it's turned into such a good news story. So, mate, you should be very, very proud of that work. And so to, to wrap this whole thing up then, um, I guess my last question is to say, 
Where can people find out more about Forever Projects and if they feel inspired to, to get involved in all of this? If they jump onto our site, foreverprojects.org, um, that's the, the place to kind of just go deep on our community, our story, our mission. Um, my little talking head will pop up and I can take you for a tour <laughs> through the, through the website. And, and, um, and then, yeah, we'd love to invite people that if we, if you feel like our story resonates with you and you want to make it your story too, uh, we'd love you to get involved. The, the most important way that we're trying to equip our local teams, um, at the moment is by building a, a monthly giving community. So it's, you know, it's, what you think about with monthly giving, but it's the power of the collective that we believe in. And so, you know, you've got people giving 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 a month. We've got a whole different community of people giving different amounts, but the power of the collective, you know, monthly transfer to those partners just means they can count on these funds month in, month out, plan their work. Um, so I think if, if people are interested in getting involved, uh, it wouldn't matter how much you're able to give, but the it's, it's the collective that, that matters there. So, yeah. And I think, mate, we, we understand, like, we've all got subscriptions. We all know what it's like to get ongoing value from something because we give seven a month to Spotify or whatever it might be. Um, love flipping it and thinking about what about a subscription product that we give value to every month and show up consistently. So, yeah. Love people to check that out if they're interested. I love that framing. The the best value subscription service out there. And of course, so that website again was foreverprojects.org. Also, I'm not too big on social media, but if you search for Forever Projects on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, all of the usual places, you'll also find more of Mark and his lovely, lovely team talking about the stories and the impact that they've been making. Mark, this has been an absolute delight. Always a pleasure to chat with you, mate. Thanks again so much for coming on today. Thanks so much, everyone out there for listening. That's enough water cooler chat for today. Let's all get back to work. I'm Armour Iqbal. And I'm Mark Donkins. Stay tuned and I'll see you soon.